Welcome to the Psych and Business Podcast, where we highlight the integration of psychology and psychological principles into the world of business and organizations. I'm your host, Dr. Ernest Wade. I'm excited for you to meet my guest today because he's the current president of the Society for Psychologists in Leadership. He is Dr. Bradley Brummel. Dr. Brummel is also a professor of psychology at the University of Houston. He received his PhD in industrial organizational psychology from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Dr. Brummel also works as a coach. He has certifications in Hogan Assessments and Narrative Coaching from the, Mo- from the Moment Institute. Dr. Brad- Dr. Brummel's research interests include leader development, personality, employee engagement, sexual harassment, and cybersecurity. Dr. Bradley Brummel, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Ernest. It's great to be here. I'm really excited to have you on the show because I actually met you when I came to the first meeting for me at least, of SBL. Uh, And I think that's when you were becoming president. And I I really enjoyed everybody there. But I always want to start the show by asking about you. So tell us a little bit about how you you went from doing research and working in academia to leading SBL. Yeah, so um, in industrial organizational psychology, I've Mm -hmm. always been an applied psychologist in that a lot of my questions and work uh, have been with companies. And uh, when you're a researcher, it's really great when you can work with companies and then they pay you for that work and then you get data that can contribute to knowledge. So that's like <laughs> the ideal situation. Yeah. But I've always been driven by answering questions that companies have a little bit more than people who really read the literature and try to solve a basic problem or mm-hmm. something that's like the next thing in the literature. And so that put me in positions to work directly with companies. So in graduate school, we did some leadership development work with assessment centers. And then uh, I did some work in employee engagement surveys, Mm -hmm. which led me into doing that kind of work um, while doing my professor job. And then after I got tenure in 2015, I really felt drawn to do more direct work with people. So it's nice when people say that your research helped them, but Mm -hmm. you don't feel it for years after you've actually done it. And you're like, what did I do again? Yeah. (laughs) And so uh, I I had done some work in coaching and I started to intentionally invest in some um, certifications, in some work. And um, honestly, people would trade me uh, uh, food for advice by our pool and our apartment (laughs) complex. And then they're like, you should do this for more than food. And so um, I started to invest in that piece. And as I did more coaching work, um, I also wanted to find other people doing similar things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that really drew me to um, SBL because that's a group of psychologists who are working sort of as leaders or in coaching and development with leaders. And so they're sort of a a kindred tribe to the kind of uh, work I've uh, begun to do more of. Yeah, that's a really great story. I love the the transition that you that you made there um, in terms of collecting data and working with people and just finding out, hey, this is what you're doing is valued and appreciated and, and really doing that professionally. You touched on something that I really want to ask about a little bit because I've had I've had other guests and we've talked about the importance of data. You know, as a psychologist, we value data and we use data. And we've talked a lot about doing that at the individual level. But you're talking about using data in an organizational level. Can you expand on that a little bit more? 
Yeah, so there's there's two sides to that. So individual psychological assessment and testing is what we do a lot of in, you know, say coaching or in clinical work to really know how this person you're working with might be different than other people. And mm -hmm. that can be helpful for your approach. And it can also be helpful to give that person insight. Um, at an organizational level, you're kind of trying to get a sense of how your organization works. And one of the biggest traps I think a leader can fall into is say, no one ever came and told me about X, so mm -hmm. it must not be real. Mm -hmm. And um, so you people rarely feel the power on the other side of the desk when they have it. And so I've worked with many leaders who have said, I am so surprised that this complaint came up in the engagement survey. No one told me. Yeah. Well, most of the time when you have a complaint, it's not safe to talk to a leader, even the most skilled, safe ones, mm -hmm. because you might have been punished in the past. You don't know what's going to happen. They might not take it seriously. And so just saying I'm available, come tell mm -hmm. me anything doesn't mean you're getting a uh, accurate and broad picture of the organization. Mm -hmm. And so you really need to create safe ways to survey the full organization. And then if you don't act on that information um, and explain to people what you're doing with it, people will also just stop telling you. Mm -hmm. And so uh, understanding that the information that gets brought to you is uh, highly curated and often um, the punches are pulled. And so um, there, there are a variety of ways to get around those blind spots as a leader, mm -hmm. uh, but it's not a natural thing to do. Yeah. So that's the data I've worked most to bring to organizations have been broad things on employee engagement. So how people are feeling and acting and investing in the organization and then uh, research as well on sexual harassment, which is something um, people have all kinds of very valid reasons for not reporting. Yeah, I, I really appreciate what you're saying, especially because it reminds me of um, the time right after COVID or right in the middle of COVID when keeping employees was really important. You know, I think the, the sense of employee engagement and paying attention to that and really focusing on that became a really big thing at that time. And a lot of organizations that hadn't done any employee engagement assessments started looking for ways to do, to, to assess their employees and get feedback from them. Very often they'd collect all this data and then they just wouldn't know what to do with it. And so I think that's where we can be really helpful as well in analyzing that data and understanding what to do with it. Yeah, and I, in organizations who realize they have sort of turnover problems, mm -hmm. often realize them, you know, too late. They're like, well, and and almost always, it's your most ambitious sort of best people who are mm -hmm. leaving when they realize that the organization kind of isn't fulfilling their psychological contract. Yeah, and so then all of a sudden, you might say, if you're a big organization, you say we don't have a turnover problem; it's only at whatever five or six percent. Mm -hmm. But if you haven't measured your employees, you don't know which people are leaving. Yeah. And most of the time, the people you're losing um, are the ones that uh, you might not want to. Mm -hmm. And if that's the case, um, your organization is getting less skilled, even if it's not, um, say, compared to the rest of the industry at a huge or disproportionate rate. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a really key point there, right? It's not just about your turnover rate. It's, it's who is actually leaving because in a lot of organizations you have high performers and middle and low. And so if you're losing your high performers at a high rate, that's, that should be really concerning. So it's important to track who is actually leaving. Yeah, there's, this is a little aside, but one of my favorite tools, which is deceptively simple is something called like an internal labor market. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I think 
the way you do it is you sort of create the triangle of people at different levels in your organization. And every year you just look at how many were promoted, how many left and how many came in mm -hmm. uh, from outside. And you can actually see if you have sort of roadblocks where there's really no opportunity to promote up, um, where you have a whole bunch of people ready to promote that maybe you need to um, even outplace them um, at that point in their career. And so there's these internal dynamics where if you mm -hmm. trap someone who's ready to be promoted too long, yeah. then it's rational for them to go find where their growth can happen. Mm -hmm. If it's not in your organization, um, then sometimes having those people leave, if it goes on good terms, you'll have an advocate and maybe that person will come back in, you know, five or 10 years with all these skills from outside. Mm -hmm. And so I think the, one of the mistakes organizations make either they, they might say turnover is not a problem. It's not too big. Or they say, we want to keep everyone. And so they like hold on to them too tight. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, there's value in leaving the organization, learning something and then bringing it back into the organization. I like that. Yeah. So, Brett, the other thing I wanted to ask you about is obviously you're, you're president of um, Society of Psychologists and Leadership, which is a, 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 um, something that I'm a member of and have really benefited from. But can you share a little bit about what it is and how this, this society is helpful to businesses and leaders? Yeah. So the organization is a collection of psychologists uh, working either as leaders or in leadership. And mm -hmm. so we have people who... Um, Typically, people who started their career in psychology and then were pulled, pushed, drawn um, through some chance thing into positions of leadership where mm -hmm. they're working primarily as leaders as opposed to as psychologists, mm -hmm. um, either in a clinical psychology role or sort of the data analysis organizational psychology role. Yeah. And, uh, and then we have some people who actually were leaders and then, you know, found psychology later and invested mm -hmm. in that in that way. And most of these people end up somewhat isolated in either their role because they're working as independent consultants or with mm -hmm. small groups or as leaders who are in leadership positions and approaching questions with the psychologist mindset, which mm -hmm. is very different. Yeah. So the organization is heading into its 40th year of existence and really it's a home uh, for uh, psychologist leaders to have camaraderie, to see what other people are doing, to you know have validation, ask hard questions. Mm -hmm. And um, this really uh, allows us to pull together across the country and across the world to continue our personal and professional development mm -hmm. and then to really you know ask questions about how it is that we lead differently as psychologists. And again, what can we bring to these very complex, difficult, um, important um, decisions that yeah. have huge impact in the world? Yeah, I, I love I love that description. Uh, you know, how how do we lead in psych as psychologists, and what can we bring, um, you know, to to leadership? And I also want to tag on something that you said in terms of this the psych psychological mindset, right? I think that's one thing that I think is really important. Can you talk a little bit more about how? how you can get a leader to start looking at things with a psychological mindset and how that can be very helpful to an organization and business. Yeah, it's, it's really uh, interesting to watch people move on these uh, trajectories. So one example I had is I coached somebody who told me that the word perception should be banned from the dictionary <laughs> because there was just truth. And as it turned out, there was like just his truth. 
<laughs> and he wasn't, so he was probably the smartest and the hardest working person at his organization, but because there was just his way, yeah. he went from managing 30 people to managing projects to no longer working in the company. Mm. And, and so, um, a lot of people get into leadership through an individual contributor role. So you get really good at engineering or finance or business or whatever you do. And after you do that, you get put in charge of 10 people or yeah. so who are not as hardworking and not as smart as you. Yeah. And then that can be really frustrating and derailing. And then you start to realize it's not just knowing how to do your work. That's important. It's trying to figure out how to lead and manage and motivate this team of people. Mm -hmm. And that really opens the door to saying, wait a second, these people are different than me. Mm -hmm. How do I do this? Yes. And so um, I think the biggest advantage we have as psychologists is we help people understand the psychological world in which mm -hmm. they're presuming and hoping to lead. And, you know, I kind of, you know, one shorthand I have for it is to say, when you look at a certain situation, Mm -hmm. is to say, like, am I actually the jerk or the asshole here? Right. <laughs> you know, if, you know, because this other person thinks I'm wrong. Yeah. I think I'm right. What must be true about their world that mm -hmm. makes them believe that they're right? So it really opens this whole door of curiosity um, that you need if you're going to lead any other way than purely with power. Mm -hmm. Um and in most organizations, um, most of the people aren't completely trapped. Mm. And so if you're not going to consider their broader options in an open system, mm -hmm. it's going to be a struggle. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I can talk for a long time about the different ways uh, this, this functions, but you find leaders kind of often they're like at the end of their rope and frustrated. They're like, this person like can't hear me. Mm -hmm. um, what's going on. And then that sort of, if they can approach it with curiosity, opens the door to different strategies, different approaches, um, insight into how they're being perceived, which is different than their intent uh, and all of those kinds of things. Yeah. I mean, all of that really resonates with me. I've, I've talked at length and with multiple people about how you can be excellent at your specific job, whether it's a clinical or a technical or whatever it is that you're doing, because it's just you and you're just in control of you and, and whatever it is that you're doing. And very often, as you said, when you do a really great job there, then you get promoted to managing other people doing that work. And that's a whole different skill that is not often accounted for. There's very often very little training for you to, to work and deal with people, how to manage people, how to manage yourself with a group of people and your frustrations. So I, I really feel like that's that's an area that's lacking in an area where coaching and consulting can really play an important part. Yeah. One of the things I've seen a lot is just because people do, they wear, they wear, they wear so many hats and what's good performance as a leader changes mm -hmm. from meeting to meeting to meeting and from person to person. Mm -hmm. And so when I work with leaders, a lot of uh, the initial first change is to actually say, what does it take for me to be in the right mindset and present mm -hmm. for this meeting that's occurring? So one example I had of this was I was working with someone who had three people, his three main reports, and they were all very different. And he said, I keep getting into trouble because I keep treating them 
like the other ones and it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. And so um, this wasn't my suggestion, but he actually came up with this uh, little trick for his meetings is to remember who they are. And he said that he had one who was a used car salesman. One was a, <laughs> one, one was a saint and one was a baby. And okay. he said, so the first five minutes of every meeting, I have to let the baby cry, the saint mm -hmm. tell on someone and the used collar dealer lie to me. But mm -hmm. after that, he's like, we can get work done. And, you know, if the used car salesman comes in and is talking about someone who's breaking the rules or is crying, I need to pay attention to that because mm -hmm. that's something different going on. Yeah. So, you know, I'm like, I don't know if I would use those terms and it kind of traps the your um, people in, in your mind, but it does give you the idea that says, wait a second, I am most effective mm -hmm. if I work differently with these people. Yeah. So you see that. And then, you know, I, a leader in complex, in this complex world has all these different roles. Like sometimes they have to tell people it's this way. Sometimes they have to sell. Sometimes they have to be kind and hold and listen. Yeah. And if you pick the wrong mindset, it won't go well. Mm -hmm. So one of my recent leaders was like a world-class debate kind of champion. Like, and so the thing yeah. was his, his favorite mindset was win this debate. But very rarely did someone come into his office hoping to have a debate yeah. uh, and, and wanting to match wits. And so <laughs> when, when it wasn't clear what the context was, like he would flip into debate mode and he would win and the person would shake their head and walk out of the office yeah. knowing they, they had lost care. the debate. But that was not good performance because that's not what the situation called for. Yeah, that you know, that reminds me of, of a... Um, of, of a leadership model that I'm familiar with the Ken and Blanchard's decision-making situational leadership approach, which really requires you to think about the person that you're working with and figure out technically and competently, where are they? Are they somebody that needs a lot of handholding or someone who can be fairly independent? And there's a spectrum um, which allows you to determine your approach based upon what that employee or what that colleague requires and needs in terms of support from you. And so it really requires you to to know that person well and understand where they are in terms of the competency scale so that then you can adjust your approach. But I think as you've described, that can be very hard for leaders to be able to adjust their own approach. You know, some, most of the time people have their own leadership style and that's kind of what they stick to regardless of what the other people need, which can cause a lot of conflict. Yeah, and there's, there's a couple pieces there, which I think are, are really helpful to unpack. So one of them is my, I, I have come to really like this differentiation between the golden rule and the platinum rule. Mm -hmm. uh, and so the golden rule is to treat people how you want to be treated. Mm -hmm. But when you start to become more of a psychologically minded leader, you realize that not everyone thinks like you. Yeah. And so this platinum rule is to treat people how they want to be treated. Mm -hmm. But as you mentioned, that's really hard. Mm -hmm. because you actually have to learn who they are, what their needs, values, and motives are, and yep. what they will respond to. So that then switches you into looking for ways of doing psychological measurement, ways mm -hmm. of remembering who the person is, and actually collecting feedback in that way. So yep. that's a much harder way to lead. And then the second piece, which is out there, is just, we call it like implicit leadership theories. So your idea about what a leader looks like, mm -hmm. and if you're going to lead differently than what everyone thinks a leader should do in your industry or in your company, 
um, it's kind of on you to explain it to people so that they still believe you're doing your job. Mm-hmm. So when I coach people, one of the things I talk to them about is what do people in your organization think you should be doing? Like, is there a prototype? Mm-hmm. And and if you're going to lead against a prototype, it's really helpful to let people know that yeah. and, say, and say it's intentional mm-hmm. because otherwise they think you're failing, but instead you're trying to show them a new, better way to do it way. Yeah. or a way that's more authentic to you. And so I worked with one client, probably one of my favorite clients, uh, kind of got promoted up two levels at once because of vacancies, um, was a very different personality style than the person that she was replacing and really wanted to do the job like as her. Mm -hmm. And so we really spent some time talking about who she had to explain this to, what she had to wear, how she had to uh, carry herself. Mm-hmm. And the fact that she would have to remind the CEO multiple times that she was going to do the role differently than the person before her, who was yeah. like this force of nature and why and what kind of support she would need. And it was a really healthy organization. And so they were actually allowed or able to do that with support. But it was a really interesting, intentional decision that mm-hmm. I could then sort of support as it unfolded. Yeah. So being very explicit and communicating, you know, almost over communicating so that people understand what you're doing and that you're taking a different approach than others. Yeah. And this, this one thing, it's so simple and we all know it, but our intention behind our behaviors is different than the impact and how it's received. Yes. And when you take that seriously, you are constantly going around having a different impact than we think. Mm-hmm. And so if we know that that's happening, then we have a chance to perhaps change it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really where the psychology, I think, comes in um, so strongly. Yeah. Yeah. Brett, I know you're also a researcher and I know you do a lot of research yourself. Do you have any any research examples that you can share with us in terms of how how psychology has had a great impact on business and business settings? Yeah, I mean, that's. It's such a big area, like um, industrial organizational psychology has been, you know, a field that uh, affects the world in in some ways for the last 130 years. You know, we started, um, you know, in the industrial revolution, kind of trying to help people perform uh, more effectively for the same amount of money. And so there was sort of this corporate uh, allegation that we were caring about the companies and not the people. Um, And that ends up being a really interesting challenge for um, coaches and consultants Mm -hmm. because we're often getting paid by the company to work with people. And as a psychologist, we care a lot about things like informed consent, uh, respect for persons, doing no harm. And a lot of business decisions and leadership decisions are done without the consent of the people Mm. and might cause some versions of harm, job loss, um, things like this. And so it's a really interesting tension there. Um, I kind of drifted a little bit away from your question. I think the areas where we've shown maybe some of the largest impact mm-hmm. is just that selecting different people for different roles makes a difference. Mm-hmm. So some people will be more likely to thrive in certain types of jobs than others and will be happier in them. Their mm-hmm. values and need fits. And when you take that seriously, that creates a whole arm and there's a huge industry around selection, Mm -hmm, but also mm -hmm. in terms of placing people into roles. 
And so I think the, the biggest, one of the biggest research findings could broadly be stated that we can do a better job than chance mm-hmm. or uh, some informal process at helping fit people into roles to be successful mm-hmm. for both the company and for their own well-being. So we're always balancing both things um, as psychologists. How do we make sure people are thriving in roles mm-hmm. and that the company is succeeding? Yeah, you know, I, I love what you're saying in terms of psychology and its impact, especially on on selection, because uh, I think especially in, in the business and especially as you get higher and higher and, and bigger and bigger, the leadership of a business is so critical and the, the, getting the right leader in the right place at the right time is absolutely essential. And it's I think it's, it's absolutely pivotal, pivotal to have you know that help in terms of selection to make sure that you're selecting not just the right person, but the right person for the right company at the right time. Yeah, and I think there's that issue in selection. And then there is a little bit of a bias um, towards selecting someone who can do this job as prescribed right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's also this question around um, developability and who the mm-hmm. person might become. And so one of the tensions is, should you hire the person who can become the best person for your company through yeah. multiple through multiple roles across time? Mm-hmm. So you're selecting someone into the company for a role but you're going to select them because of their um, potential, their potential mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to what they can do right now. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of companies fall into the trap of hiring someone who can do the job as it's listed, especially mm-hmm. with the screen out techniques they have now on HR softwares. If you yeah. don't have all the competencies and experience, they won't take you in, but you might be someone who could be a leader of the company someday mm-hmm. because you're smart, you're driven, you have the personality characteristics that, allow you to thrive in the role. And so I really try to encourage companies to think about, are you hiring a cog to fill this hole, this job? Mm-hmm. Or are you hiring someone who fits the culture of the company, who's going to whichever role you have them in over the next 20 years, change mm-hmm. your trajectory. And I think companies tend to hire people for skills and abilities that can be trained really quickly mm-hmm. and then uh, sacrifice on attributes which are harder to change and really important for long time, long-term contribution. Like mm-hmm. is somebody kind, is somebody hardworking? Some of these things you might not screen in. And so you end up with a whole bunch of people who can only do the one job that they have right now. And with technology changing, that job might not be relevant in six months. Yeah. Yeah. So really important to hire for fit in the culture, right? Because as you're saying, you can train some of those other skills uh, pretty quickly. Yeah, we, we uh, get squeamish a little bit about the term character um, because we're then we're saying some people have better character than others. Mm-hmm. But um, when you want to say character for being a member of this organization or accomplishing this role ethically um, well, training other people, working well in teams, um, I think it's probably an accurate label for what we're trying to do. Mm. Yeah. Brad, we could we could talk on forever, you know, going on with this stuff. You know, you and I always just just go on back and forth with this, but I want to be respectful of time. So I'm going to ask, how do people get a hold of you? Because I know that you're out there doing your own work and you're doing great work. So how do people get a hold of you if they want to, you know, hire your services yeah, or chat with you? 
Sure. The, t- the two easiest ways are um, through LinkedIn um, because I have a profile there or with a direct email. Mm-hmm. So you can email me um, at my university account, which is just bjbrummel at uh.edu um, as I just uh, am new to the Houston area. Um, and then, yes, that's, that's the main way. And then from there, you know, I like to have discussions about um, research and psychology. Obviously, you can tell from this podcast. Yeah. Uh, so I start almost everything with the general conversation. And when I do professional work or coaching work, um, it's I always determine fit first. Mm-hmm. So if someone doesn't fit with me, then there's somebody else out there that's yeah. probably a better person. And so one of the things I've had the luxury of doing is not really having to like hustle or advertise for work yeah. um, because I really do the consulting and leadership side to supplement um, my exposure and knowledge of the field. So I ask mm-hmm. better research questions and then also just for the, the joy of sort of learning people's lives, helping them, um, nudging them towards growth. Uh, yeah, I love that approach. It's a learning approach, right? You're helping and learning at the same time. Yeah, it's it's a pretty. Uh, I feel feel very fortunate to get to do this this work. Excellent. And then I always ask everybody who comes on the show because we have you on for free advice, right? So, what what advice or what tip would you give up to leaders or organizations right now in this environment? So the current thing that's probably freshest on my mind is this: is ideas around boundary management. Because technology allows everyone to be present in everything at once, but also maybe never really focused. Mm-hmm. Uh, it gets into some of these deep work ideas. And what companies do is I, I really think that it's important for them to be clear-eyed and honest about what a role requires. So in most organizations, there are jobs where you have to be there in person, maybe 40 hours a week to accomplish a task. And then there's other roles where you don't really need to be there. You're kind of always working, but you never have to be working. Um, Sometimes it aligns with this sort of uh, hourly versus salary distinction, but not always. And if a company isn't very clear with how they expect boundaries to work, it's going to be chaos across Mm -hmm. the organization. So my uh, colleague and I actually just wrote a chapter on what we call like strategic boundary management. Mm -hmm. Um, So thinking about how your company is going to help their employees manage work, non-work boundaries. Mm. Um, Do they get to choose within a unit? Are there specific rules? Do specific roles have this issue? Um, Because there's so many justice concerns about some people who have to be in the office or on the plant floor and some people who don't. And what does that mean? So one of my friends actually transitioned from being uh, a a worker, like a manager within a Mm -hmm. plant to the plant manager. Mm. And he thought he had to be the first one there and the first one out and also available all weekend because (laughs) he was in charge of everything, right? But the luxury that you have to be able to take to keep your life and your family balanced then is that actually you can't be there all the time. You're supposed Mm -hmm. to be able to use the flexibility because you always have to be available. Yeah, And so I think that so many people are really confused about what's okay and not okay at their company. Um, I had a company where the CFO said, hey, I want this to be family first. If you need to stay home, take care of a kid, you know, do something with your, your family, make sure you do that. Um, and, you know, we can work around when you work. This is like an engineering company. Mm. But he stayed home to do stuff with his kids one day. 
came in at 1030 and snuck in the side door so no one saw him. <laughs> and, and my point was that if he was really trying to lead the company, he should have came in the front door and told every single person that he had done mm -hmm. this Yeah, because he claimed it was the rule, but then he didn't live it. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that this question around in the office, not in the office, those are all going on, but companies have both types of employees. Yep. And if you're not clear with them that if you if you have to be here nine to five, then we do not contact you on the weekends. And actually, we don't want you sending emails. We want you to take that break and live your life so that when you're working, you're here, both yep. mentally and physically. But if you have a role that we kind of need to be able to contact you, you know, when you're on uh, throughout the week, then, yeah, if you have to go to the dentist at 10 a.m. on a Tuesday or you have to stay late, you know, make sure you flex that time mm -hmm. and don't lose the family life. And so I really think that to, you can companies can have a strategic advantage if they're clear eyed about this. And then they throughout the organization get their supervision to um, enforce and uh, model yeah. whatever version of that they've come to. Because the people will take, otherwise people will take advantage and just kind of not work if they're skilled or they'll just be constantly on at work, um, which relates to some of this burnout yeah. phenomena that you hear a lot of. Yeah. And so that, that's that piece where I've, I've almost, I've seen very few companies that have been really serious and strategic about how that works in their organization. Yeah, you know, I, I really love that. And I think that's, that's really important. Uh, advice because since COVID, almost every workplace is a hybrid workplace now, right? And so I think it's really important to be very clear about what the flexibility rules are and help people find the balance. I think you, you know you have to be explicit in helping people find the balance because we don't always do a good job of that. You know, sometimes the people who work, your high performers will will overdo it and work too hard, and some of the people who are a little bit less will you know take too much flexibility. So really helping people figure out where the balance is and how that impacts their home life, as well as the, the work environment and, and how um, that's really critical, as you're saying, as a, to, to use that as a strategic advantage, right? And the business is really important. So I really love that advice. Yeah. And I think there's a, a maybe a tangible example here, which is sort of speaks to a lot of what psychology and leadership can help people unpack. Mm -hmm. And that's these companies that have unlimited time off. Yeah. Right. So they have unlimited time off and they say, this is great. Actually, when we move to unlimited time off, people take less time off. Right. <laughs> and so this is one of those findings where they're like, oh, this is great. We can tell them they have unlimited time off, but we're going to con them into working even more mm -hmm. uh, because they don't really know what the rules are, because there is a certain amount of time you take off where you're just going to get fired. Yeah. And so yeah. this is it's it's a version they call it strategic ambiguity. But then no one can ever say for sure, like, oh, I, my boss, my company, the agreement we have is that they want me to disconnect and take this time off and refresh. Mm -hmm. And so it just creates chaos and a lack of real um, sort of footing for someone mm -hmm. to know that what they're doing isn't going to hurt them. Yeah. And then the supervisor doesn't know what they can say about somebody who needs to be somewhere to get a project out. And so I think that it's a kindness for a company uh, and for a leader to make those expectations clear. Yeah. And it also highlights how, you know, there's a certain version of psychology and leadership that can be used pretty manipulatively. Mm -hmm. And 
um, there's other versions that can be used to really empower the workers. Yeah. Uh, and so that's a balance that's always there in these spaces. Yeah, I love, you know, it's so funny. You were just talking about unlimited time off. And I was just working with a client earlier this week where they were considering using unlimited time off. And we looked at data and the data shows that actually nobody ever uses more time of it. They actually use less just because exactly what you're talking about. So, uh, Brett, thank you so much for coming on the show. I, I've, you know, I, I love talking with you and I'm really glad that our listeners got to hear you and learn from you. So I really appreciate you coming on the show. Absolutely. Thanks, Ernest. It's been, uh, it's been enjoyable as always. Awesome. Well, we always have more to talk about, so we'll definitely just have to have you come back so we can talk more. Sounds good. Sounds good. Anytime. And to our listeners, thanks for listening. I hope you'll join us next time.